I'm Harriet Hendel. We are so honored to have two guests who are expert in this field, Chris Henning and Laura Cohen. Our first guest, Professor Henning, is the author of a new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. I was very fortunate to have received a copy of this book before it was released, so my gratitude and thanks goes to Lisa Pally from the Miami Book Fair. This book fair is the oldest, largest collection of literati, and the fair will be hosting its 39th season this November. It draws 250,000 book lovers and authors from all over the world. Chris Henning is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law, where she and her students represent youth accused of delinquency in Washington, D.C. She was the lead attorney for the juvenile unit of the D.C. Public Defender Service. Currently, she is director of the Mid-Atlantic Juvenile Defender Service. She has been awarded the Juvenile Leadership Prize by the Juvenile Law Center. Welcome, Chris, to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And That's great. On this podcast, my listeners know that I have a strong affinity for young people. Having spent 30 years of my life teaching children in grades K through 8 with learning disabilities, but it is a whole different story when we think about children caught up in our justice system. Chris, you have advocated for kids for over 25 years, representing those accused of crimes in Washington, D.C. Did working with children inspire you to write the book? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's hard to do this work for as long as I have, like you said, you know, 26 years without really just wanting to give voice to so much of what I was seeing or still see um, in the courts and with the young people that I represent. And, you know, I wanted to give voice to the ways in which Black children are criminalized for normal adolescent behaviors. Um, I wanted to give voice to the trauma that Black children experience when they feel like they are over-policed. And when I say over-policed, I don't just mean by police in a blue uniform, but also by all of us civilians. I call that policing by proxy, right? Mm. When we see a Black child and are afraid of them. So absolutely, doing this work has inspired me to, to write this book. That's, that's wonderful. Well, the book has so much to say, and we're going to try to do the best we can with uh, you know, asking you about what you have written. Along with a host of statistics and research, what stood out to me were the stories that you tell to drive a point home. One statistic states kids with a learning disability make up between 30 to 85% of incarcerated youth. You mentioned black youth with autism will be arrested more often than white youth with the same diagnosis. To illustrate this point, would you tell us about Kwame 
and is it Stefan? Is that how he says? Yeah. Um, So, so, you know, Kwame um, is the best, you know, sort of story to tell from, you know, personal experience in Washington, D.C. You know, he was a young child who um, clearly had significant learning disabilities. And he was, at the time I represented him, was being evaluated for autism. But the, 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 doctors suspected that he was autistic. And he uh, one day was, uh, he was turnstile jumping, which uh, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's just entering the public metro, um, entering a public subway without paying the fare, right? Something that, you know, teenagers do, right? Whether, you know, we agree with it or not, it's what teenagers do. And one officer walked up to him and he immediately knew that he was in the wrong. And he put his hands uh, behind his back as if he were in cuffs, right? (laughs) He immediately knew he was in the wrong. And, you know, so the officer walked up to him and, you know, began to talk to him, you know, pretty quietly and things were going fine. Then all of a sudden, a second officer walks up onto the scene and touches my client on the shoulder. And my client just completely sort of flipped out. Um, He even banged his own head on the turnstile. And, you know, he just began to sort of scream and holler and react in a way that the officers themselves knew that something was a little off, but they didn't know what, right? They weren't trained in how to deal with this. And what um, we discovered when I met his guardian, who is his biological aunt, we realized that he just um, um, completely sort of became scared and paralyzed and that some of his uh, cognitive limitations, his executive functioning limitations, his disability, it sort of exacerbated what is already a quite frightening circumstance for many young people of color. And so at, during the course of representing uh, Kwame, I and Kwame is what I call him for purposes of the book, um, but I met with an expert a speech and language expert who really just helped me understand why it is that um, young people like Kwame um, react in the way that they do. And what I learned is that many people with speech and language disabilities um, and executive functioning disabilities need um, instructions told to them one at a time, you know, brush your teeth, all right, now, you know, put on your shirt. Now, put on your pants. Okay, now wash your face. Now, you know, um, and so the rapid fire encounters that that young people often have with the police are not at all like that. You know, stop, freeze, put your hands up, um, you know, put your hands behind your back, sit down on the you know stoop. Whatever it is, is very frightening and and really difficult for for many folks to follow. Similarly, like with regard to other speech or with speech and language dis, uh, disorders, for example, um, young people have a hard time answering the WH questions, who, what, where, when, why, right? That are very commonly asked by police officers to young people. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Why did you not pay? Those kinds of things Mm -hmm. are very intimidating. And then the final example of that is that um, many sort of young people with 
um, uh, with disabilities, not, you know, it just depends with autism in particular, you know, have a sensory deficit um, complications, right? Meaning that loud noises, loud sounds or, or touching, okay, so I should say loud noises, bright lights and touching, physical contact are very terrifying um, and disorienting for, um, for, for children. So again, think about my story with Kwame, an officer walks up to him, rapidly out of nowhere, puts his hand on his shoulder and just completely, you know, throws our client off kilter. So that's in part why you see that so many young people with disabilities have difficulty navigating a an encounter with the police. And then when they have these sort of moments of reacting, um, you combine that with implicit racial bias. And those behaviors um, are often misread as threatening and aggressive um, because of the stereotypes and assumptions that we have about Black children. So that's in part why you see in the school system, for example, Black children in particular um, with disabilities and Latino children with disabilities are far more likely to be arrested in schools than um, children without disabilities and white children in general. Right. Well, another story, I do love your stories. Um, some of them I knew, many of them I did not. Another story you cite is that of 14-year-old Brennan Walker from Michigan who did a very innocuous thing. What right. did he do? Yeah, so Brennan, you know, um, walked up, was new to the neighborhood. Let's be clear. He had just moved there. He and his family had been there, you know, one week, maybe in two weeks at the most. He had learned to walk to school. He was walking to school one morning, eight o'clock in the morning, and actually got turned around. He got lost trying to get to school. And so what does he do? An innocent, you know, child walks up to uh, someone's door. And he even sees a sticker that says neighborhood watch. Mm -hmm. And he walks up to the door and he knocks on the door just to get some instruction. The woman who um, approaches the door <clears throat> sees him, a young black kid, and begins to scream and say, why are you trying to rob us? Um, <laughs> At eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning, right? Kid with a book bag. I mean, it's just, you know, so disturbing. Um, her husband, who was upstairs at the time, um, hears her, his wife screaming and comes running down the stairs, opens the door, runs out onto the porch and begins to fire a weapon at him um, as he is um, running away uh, for his life. Um, you know, Brennan gets uh, a few blocks away, breaks down crying, calls, you know, his mother. Um, and it's just tragic. Right. And so police officers arrive and it clearly was just a moment where a kid doing what a kid does and the automatic assumption, yeah. automatic assumption is that the kid is trying to commit a crime instead of a kid who needs help. And that's a function, you know, Harriet, of how our implicit biases work. Right. That's right. And that, that to me is a classic story. I remember hearing it on the news and, and thinking, what were they thinking? Right. The people who own the house, you know. So those were good examples. Um, and then um, you begin your book with a story about a teen named Eric. You're right. So that's another story. You want to share that with us? 
Sure. I mean, that's sort of the quintessential um, story I give to explain, to really, you know, open the book for everyone. This is like the first page of the book. (laughs) I tell about, you know, my client, Eric, who was a 13 year old boy who on a Saturday night was was watching a movie and he sees someone with a Molotov cocktail. And he says to himself, oh, that looks cool. Let me see if I can make something that looks like that. He doesn't research it. He doesn't ask anybody what's in a Molotov cocktail. He just goes into the kitchen and he grabs a glass bottle and he begins to pour in whatever liquids he can find. Bleach, pine saw, you know, these are water soluble, you know, items that are not going to, you know, catch up and blow anything up. And my favorite part of the story is that he takes a piece of toilet paper and he (laughs) runs the toilet paper from the inside of the bottle to the out and he puts the cap on it. Um, And we know that this toilet paper is going to burn out before it, you know, even reaches the cap. And so, you know, he's 13, he plays with it and then he forgets all about it. It's a Saturday night. He puts it in his book bag um, and, and really does just forget all about it. Um, Monday morning comes, his mother drives him to school and he puts his book bag through the metal detector, right? At his school. Um, And an officer, the school resource officer sees it and asks him, hey, what is this? To which he immediately responds, oh, that is nothing. You can throw it away. Um, He goes on to class, doesn't think anything about it. Little does he know, this is the beginning of a nine month ordeal in the local courthouse because he gets arrested. He gets um, the, the fire department shows up. The the police department shows up. He gets dragged out of class, arrested. Nobody gives him the benefit of the doubt when he says over and over again, you know, it was just a toy. I wasn't, you know, trying to blow up the school. Um, and, you know, he got held in detention and, and prosecuted for this um, over a course of nine months. And here, you know, Harriet, here's the here's the hooker. Um, uh, the real hook for this story is that um, a short time later, sometime later, I was giving a talk, um, participating in a conference in Connecticut, and I'm sharing the story as a part of my comments. And a white woman walks up to me after um, uh, after my comments and says, my son did the exact same thing. That's what's so breathtaking. And I say, what happened to your son? And she says, they put him in advanced chemistry classes. So it's just an extraordinary contrast between my 13-year-old African-American client, right? And this, you know, white kid who Connecticut, who gets rewarded for being creative and thoughtful and just being a kid. Amazing. Yeah, really so great, great story to illustrate a, a very important point. Let's talk about children prosecuted as adults. That's one of my favorite topics. Here is a statistic from your book. Quote, in 2015, at least 75,000 youth under age 18 were prosecuted as adults, a large number of whom were Black. We also learn that Florida prosecutes and incarcerates the highest number of children as adults in the nation. The majority, once again, are black. Just a few weeks ago, there was an opinion piece in the New York Times with the title, Trying Minors as Adults Won't Reduce Crime. It was written by Vincent Giraldi and Gladys Carrion. 
The article talks about alternatives to jail. The authors state that trying more young people in adult courts rather than family courts is associated with more crime, not less among young people. Can you address some of these concepts? Yeah, I mean, starting with the data point, I mean, I've actually read that uh, opinion piece in the New York Times. I, I have extraordinary respect for um, Vincent Chiraldi and Gladys Carrion, who wrote that, both state leaders um, uh, um, on behalf of children. And, you know, the, the, the number one point is that Black youth are 8.6 times more likely to be held in an adult um, correctional facility than white youth, right? Um, so the extraordinary racial disparity is 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 just profound, um, and it speaks to. And I talk about this in the book as well. The ways in which we dehumanize black children, even when they make mistakes. So let's be clear that the first um, the the Eric example um, mm -hmm. that I gave you involves normal adolescent behavior, to be quite frank, which should not have been criminalized for any child, but the racial disparity is evident, just the criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. What we're talking about when we talk about transferring children to adult court is often, indeed, the child did commit a crime, but not always. Khalif Browder is an example, but I, I was going to ask you about him in a little that's bit. Right. <laughs> okay. okay, we could talk about him too. Yeah, but, not, but but let's just assume that we're talking about kids who do commit crimes. Okay. The research shows that children are less culpable for their behaviors um, because we know so much more about the adolescent brain than we ever did before. We know that children are. Um, uh, are impulsive and reactive, um, sensation seekers. They're heavily influenced by their peers sure. and other adults. And so they do things, they make mistakes during these adolescent years. And sometimes those mistakes have really bad outcomes. They might even hurt someone, all right? But that is a product of normal adolescent development. And the second piece of it, and this is what you were alluding to about alternative ways to respond, even when young people engage in behaviors that are dangerous um, and that are harmful. Um, the research shows that because the adolescent brain is still developing, that young people are amenable to rehabilitation and to redirection, and that most children with even Community-based interventions, right? Rehabilitative support services um, that are attentive to their mental health, that are attentive to their vocational needs, that are attentive to um, uh, basic uh, fundamental support like education and housing. Those children can be rehabilitated such that they do not need to be in jail and prisons with adults for extended periods of time. And guess what? Um, the research also shows that incarcerating children um, during those adolescent years is the worst thing we can do um, to healthy adolescent development, the worst thing that we can do for public safety, because we actually increase crime instead of reducing crime. And so we're, we've got it all wrong. And the fact that we managed to get this wrong with Black kids and brown kids says something about how we as society um, really um, 
don't see children, black children as children. And we see them in ways that are dehumanizing um, and invalidating and excluding them instead of helping them um, and correcting them. The thing I often ask myself and I, I ask my my guest as well is if we know these things and there's so much more, you know, your, your topic here uh, and mine is, is narrow. We're just talking about um, uh, black kids in the system, but if we know the things we uncover, you know, that we've learned, why do we keep doing the same thing again and again? There's so many reasons. Such a great <laughs> question. You know, part of it is political, right? You mm. get these temporary upticks in crime, which is what we saw in the 1990s. And so you've got the political pressure to make everyone safe. This country has bought into the idea that the only way to keep people safe is with traditional law enforcement punitive responses, right. arrest, prosecution, and incarceration, and incarceration for extended periods of time when we know these things don't work. But it's politically, that uh, you win a lot of political gains, yeah, right? right? By 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 these tough on crime law and order responses, because psychologically people can accept and believe that incarcerating someone must be the best answer. Right. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of it, right? Um, I think also too, we don't see our children. We don't see ourselves in the children that we lock up, right? Mm -hmm. And that goes, that speaks directly to this disproportionality, right? We are ready to believe um, back in the 1990s that Black children were super predators beyond redemption, right? We could right. buy into that because we could not see children, those children as our children. So we were much quicker to believe that they were responsible for all the crime. We were much um, uh, more readily um, willing to send them away for long periods of time um, and not give them the rehabilitative services. And we respond in ways that we would never respond to um, our own children. And just by way of example, think about Kyle Rittenhouse as yeah. in a direct contrast. He killed two people. First yes, of all, he, he had a gun. He had a gun yeah. um, in public and then he killed two people and he severely injured another person. And he, you know, in him, his mother and rightfully so, his defense attorney wanted the whole world to see him as an adolescent who got in over his head mm -hmm. and needed to uh, act in self-defense. Right. right? Um, whereas Tamir Rice you know, 12 year old child from Cleveland, Ohio, who's playing with a toy gun in a park, yeah. right? Within less than three seconds of police arriving on the scene, he shot dead and killed. Yeah. It's a radical difference in the ways in which we perceive adolescent behaviors, right? Huge, huge gap. Huge, That's huge, huge gap. gap. Why do we think it's okay for a, uh, a Kyle Rittenhouse to walk in the street, even with a hunting license? First of all, a hunting license doesn't give you the right to walk around a public street, um, you know, and with limited, very, very limited experience with any kind of weapon whatsoever. He gets scared because he has no life experience to deal with this and to navigate this. Why does he show up in that location? He showed up because his friends called and said, hey, come 
to help us protect these businesses. I've got your gun waiting for you right here. Um, and we saw that as an adolescent behavior that just went awry. We yeah. never see a black child with a gun as an adolescent peer influence situation that maybe get got out of control. We don't. We never give uh, a black child those kinds of benefits of the doubt and due process. Right. Um, so it's hugely problematic. Yeah, it is. Well, we are almost out of time. But you did say you would come back and talk to us some more. And there's so much more to ask you and to talk about. So I would like you to do that. And uh, I'd like to talk about the impact of, of uh, what it's like for kids to be in an adult facility, an adult jail. So we'll, we'll start with that next time. So thank you, Chris, for being with us today. You've been listening to Pursuing Justice, and we will have you come back next time and hope our listeners join us as well. So see right. you next time. Thank you. See you then. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet. You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. We have been talking about how our criminal justice system treats Black youth, and I hope that my listeners will tune in to the program before this one, because that was our first podcast in a four-part series about this topic. So today we are asking we are we've asked Chris Henning Professor Henning to return she spoke to us last time and she is the author of The Rage of Innocence How America Criminalizes Black Youth and I would like to continue our discussion we we talked about so many topics last time we have many more to cover so what I'd like you to talk about Chris and welcome back is the impact of being in an adult facility as an adolescent. And could you discuss Khalif Browder's very well-known case? And if anyone hasn't heard, I'm sure you will be moved by it when Chris talks about it. So tell yeah, us so, about that. Yeah. So why don't I start there? I mean, Khalif sure. Browder was a 16-year-old boy who was um, accused of robbery. So he was uh, accused of stealing a book bag um, from a gentleman. And the witness, um, the complaining witness, the person whose book bag was taken, was um, basically unable to give a, a description or an adequate detailed description of the person who uh, robbed him. But somehow two weeks later, two weeks after he was robbed, he sees um, a Khalif Browder and maybe another Khalif Browder at the time may have been with a friend. Um, and he says, oh, that's the guy who robbed me. Right. And so Khalif Browder gets uh, um, arrested uh, two weeks after a robbery and is adamant from day one. It wasn't me. You've got the wrong person. I have no idea what you're talking about. I did not rob anyone. Again, no one believed him whatsoever. He was arrested and sent to Rikers Island, right? Um, no, notoriously um, known or sort of notorious for being one of the um, more dangerous and violent uh, facilities in New York 
city, um, particularly at the time at which um, Khalif Browder was there. And um, it became pretty clear within weeks that the complaining witness, the, the victim who had indeed been robbed, had moved out of the country and was not coming back. Okay, so he was never going to be a witness for Khalif Browder. Mm. Yet the prosecutors never dismiss the case. The judge, you know, not until many years later, three years later, um, the judge doesn't dismiss the case. And they the prosecutors kept offering at various points to allow Khalif Browder to plead guilty. And he refused. Why? Because he was adamant that he did not do this. Um, and so here's what's really important about being sent to Rikers Island. He gets sent to Rikers Island for three years, pending trial. This in and of itself is an absolute atrocity. And there's no, you know, we would never do this. You know, Khalif Browder is an African-American kid. I, I really, you know, would wager money that we would never let a white child just languish um, for three years when it became pretty evident that this witness was not going to return. Um, so during the course of the three years, two, at least two of those years, you know, at varying points, he is held in solitary confinement. So you asked me about the, the, what is it like to be a teenager in an, an adult facility? Now, mind you, Rikers is an adult facility, but he's on a youth block within the facility, right? But with other teenagers in their adolescent years, right? The worst thing that we could possibly do for a teenager is to lock them up in prison during those adolescent years, right? Um, your, your development is stifled. The brain is malleable and is eager and willing to learn during those adolescent years. That's when you, um, you can test limits and be creative and um, learn what we call social emotional skills, which is just about learning how to engage with other people. Well, guess what? When you're in prison, you don't get those opportunities at all. It's a regimented rule-based um, uh, intolerant um, place to be. And so there's no opportunity for true, healthy adolescent brain development. So that's problem number one. <laughs> um, but in addition to that, you know, places like Rikers Island and, 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 you know, if he even like on a youth block and even um, in other places across the country, had he been on an adult block, it's it's all terrible. Like you're subject to abuse by other inmates. Um, if you're with adults, you're subject to abuse by adult inmates. You're subject to abuse by guards, whether you're on a youth block or on an adult block. Right. The correctional officers in those um, facilities are not trained in adolescent development. They're not trained in adolescent de-escalation. So basically, you've got a group of, you know, teenage boys. You all know what teenage boys are like. <laughs> you know, talk about conflict in a facility in what we call congregate care on top of one another, right? Um, without good access to healthy food, without good, good opportunities for exercise, without good opportunities to sunlight, without opportunities for really meaningful educational and vocational opportunities. And then you put the child in solitary confinement. 
right? Giving them very, very limited um, meals, you know, complete darkness. I mean, it's just absolutely devastating for adolescent development. It's unconscionable. It's is, unconscionable. Is what it is. Absolutely. And I didn't even mention sexual abuse, you know, yeah. is rampant, just all of that. It's the worst thing we can do for children. And so ultimately, Khalif Bowder is in um, Rikers for three years. Like I said, at least two of those years, you know, 24 of those months were in um, solitary confinement. He gets out and we think, you know, okay, he's going to make it, right? And his mental health issues, his mental health, um, which so completely deteriorated while he was in uh, Rikers, just really, he couldn't get ahead of it. And he ultimately took his own life after he was released. But I just, I want every single one of us oh. to imagine what it would be like when you know you're innocent, you're adamant that you're innocent, you never get a trial, you're in solitary confinement, you get beaten, and there are videos of him getting beaten by guards, you know, his property was stolen, shoes were stolen, clothes were stolen, you know, from him by other inmates. Um, it's just constant chaos um, and, and just lack of mental health care and services. And he gets out and he really goes to college um, for a minute and just um, really became the poster child for the, the need for reform of the criminal legal system. Um, and so he was a hero and still is for a while. And then again, um, he just couldn't take it and took his own life. So himself. So Imagine sad. how desperate you are. You hang yourself out of a window of your mother's uh, apartment. Just awful. Or mother's home, excuse me. It's a, it's a classic story, and it, it certainly ought to have us think about what we're doing and yeah. how how could we avoid an ending like that? It never mm. should have happened, right? That's right. Never should have happened. And Harriet, you know, kids commit suicide in facilities. I talk about another girl. I talk about another um, young person, Nisi Fennell, who, you know, I'll just, just say this, you know, it, you know, who took her own life in the facility. And it's not uncommon for teenagers mm. to kill themselves in adult facilities. They're not safe. They're not protected. No. And we're not, you know, keeping anybody, you know, safe. That's right. Our, our next guest following you will be Professor Laura Cohen from Rutgers University, and I might add a close friend of yours. Yes. And she is going to be talking about the topic of false confessions, which is a whole program in itself. That's right. Um, also, and she will probably address the research about the teen brain, which you definitely um, touched upon. And I always feel you cannot talk about that enough because it's right. so, so important. So that will be uh, coming up. Here's a statement from your book I'd like you to comment on. Quote, America's obsession with incarcerating Black Americans begins with Black children. Yeah. What do you, what do you want to say about that? What, what, uh, yeah. Where does that come from? Yeah. So, where does that come from? Right. <laughs> so that America has um, a long history of failing to treat black children like children. Um, and it starts from the era of slavery when black children were the property of the purported master. Fast forward to the um, civil rights era and you can have a 14 year old black boy, Emmett Till, who is lynched. Um, why? Uh, he's lynched, to be quite frank. Um, as a symbolic statement 
to all of America that we will not tolerate integration in any way. And in order to justify that, he's got to be demonized. And so you have what appears to be this sort of random, you know, encounter whereby um, he is accused of whistling at a white woman, right? So he's demonized as a threat to all of white America. But that case was so significant because it was the symbolic statement about um, perceptions, um, American perceptions of Black children and what their limitations and what their place in society must be, right? And so you, how dare you, you know, speak to a white woman or flirt with a white woman at all, right? But that's a symbolic statement right in the era of the civil rights movement. Fast forward to the the the, the 1990s um, and this super predator era, Right. And we've got this temporary uptick in crime. And, you know, we talk about this. Right. The politicians think they can they can um, have political gain. Right. From uh, associating blackness with criminality. Right. Yeah. And who becomes the primary targets of this super predator myth? It is black children and black boys in particular. Yeah. Um, and so how do you justify that? It's all about the explicit ways in which black children are demonized for political gain, um, to limit power, economic advantages. And so why do I say all of that? So then the these fears of uh, black children live on in the American psyche. So even after the super predator myth is disproven, right. um, we, we have the legacy of fear. And so that means, Harriet, when average citizens walk down the street, they walk through a park and they see a black child, they are afraid. Right. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say that, you know, the the obsession with incarcerating black America begins with black children. We are afraid of black children, uniquely afraid, not because they are actually dangerous and threatening and aggressive, but because of the historical narrative that has been laid for us throughout history has now um, become a part of our subconscious thinking, even when we're not aware of it. Yeah. Good. That, that explains that statement very, very well. Now I'm going to switch gears here. You have a very personal story about the criminal justice system and how it has affected your family. I'm certain that that was a very difficult section in the book to write. Will you share it with us? Yeah, it, it is. I, I say all the time, it is almost impossible to be uh, a Black woman uh, in America or a Black person in America who has not been impacted in some pretty direct way by the criminal legal system, regardless of class, regardless of educational attainment, um, regardless of you know your position or title within society. And so my family is no is no different. Um, I had a brother who um, was you know caught up into the criminal legal system, um, and in his early days caught up in the legal system for being a kid, really, um, and the just the absolute tolerant intolerance of of black children being black children and acting like children, um, and so. 
ultimately, though, unfortunately, you know, he lost his life within the criminal legal system, right? Um, and so it was extremely, extremely, extremely hard to write that um, yeah. section and to write those sections at various points. And I end up writing about it in a chapter I call um, the, uh, the Black Family in the Era of Mass Incarceration, right? Um, and I talk about how difficult it is to be, you know, a black parent or to be a black sibling and to have, you know, family members who have been lost through the criminal legal system, whether it's the parents of of black children who have been gunned down, to yeah. be quite frank, the Tamir Rices and the, you know, the Mike Browns and, you know, others who have been killed, unfortunately, at the hands of police, as well as, you know, it is to be a black family member whose child or sibling has gone to prison for extended periods of time. Um, and so I struggled writing that chapter and having to share that with my own living sibling and saying, hey, I want to publish this. I want to print this. Are you OK with talking about it? And then, you know, the final thing I'll say about that chapter in particular is I really wanted to be careful when I give voice to somebody else's story, like Tamir Rice's mother's story, Samaria Rice's story, or, you know, Jordan Edwards or Jordan Davis's parents, that I wanted to listen to their voices. So I listened to, you know, um, newsreels of them being interviewed and documentaries of them being interviewed and, you know, um, read interviews by them because I only wanted to use their quotes, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't want to uh, imagine what it would be like. And so that was really a difficult chapter, you know, to do the research to tell those stories um, and then to relive my own. Of course. Yeah. Well, thank you for your sharing it with us. Um, what was the impact on you writing the book I was overwhelmed at the amount of citations included at the end, about 120 pages. How long a project was this book for you to put together from beginning to end? Oh, what a great question. Um, I would say it was about uh, a four-year process. And I will say, and I really want your audience to hear this, you talk about the stories. So that when I, I'm a law professor, right? And so we law professors have a very bad habit of writing academic um, speak, right? Big words, <laughs> fancy words or whatever. Right. So I don't want anybody to be intimidated by the footnotes. The footnotes are relegated <laughs> to the back of the book. So if you don't ever want to read the, the footnotes, you don't have to. But what I wanted, so, so why, part of why it took so long to write this is that, as I said at the beginning, I really wanted to give voice to the children that I represented. I wanted to tell their stories, but then I also wanted to help readers understand their stories through the research. So each time I would tell a story for myself, I would think about it in some, in, 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 in some research or data that would help explain it. And then the more research I would do, ooh, I would remember another story, right? And so it just kept working back and forth, back and forth. But even when I finished sort of the first draft, if you will, sketch or outline or draft, I, you know, was sharing various pieces with my friends and they were like, ooh, you know, this is really good, but it sounds way too academic. If you want this to be a mass press book and a book for a mass audience, you're going to have to rewrite this 
even more um, as, as, as storytelling and um, figuring out how to weave together these stories and the research in a way that everybody can understand. So that's honestly, Harriet, what took so long mm-hmm. is the going back and starting over. So I could tell it in a way that actually now, Harriet, I've got teenagers who read the book and really? I, you know who do book clubs around the book. Um, who have interviewed me around the book. So it's very accessible um, for high school kids, middle school kids, as well as adults like you and me. That's fantastic. That That's kind of a lead into my next question, which is what do you hope your book will accomplish in terms of changes for the way Black youth are treated in our justice system? Thank you for that question. I I want every single reader to pick up this book and to find themselves in the book. So what do I mean by that? I want them to read those stories and say, wow, I did that when I was a kid, or my child did that just last week, (laughs) because they're still a child, right? And I want you to remember that you didn't get arrested for that. You weren't expelled or suspended from school for that. You weren't demonized for that. And guess what? You are just fine. And many of your listeners are thriving and doing wonderfully, even though they did silly, impulsive, reactive things during childhood, even though they made mistakes as a teenager. So that's number one. I want them to see themselves. I also want them to get you know, proximate, if you will, with the with black children and to hear and see and feel the trauma that I describe in the book um, uh, that black children live through. Because I think it's those kinds of stories that change hearts and change minds and make people really want to make a difference, that make individual readers want to go to their local lawmakers and say, well, we need to rethink how we are policing, that we don't need um, uh, traditional law enforcement strategies for for, to keep our kids safe, either in school or in the community. In the book, I advocate for a public health approach to school safety and to community safety, which is really attentive to the relationships between children and adults that focuses on racial equity, that is trauma-informed, and that seeks restorative justice, right? So what does that look like? You know, you know, on the ground, it means we have a continuum of mental health counselors and providers in school systems. It means we teach social emotional learning in the school system. It means that we um, uh, have vocational opportunities in the school system. Um, Things like that, instead of police officers and um, metal detectors and surveillance cameras in schools. Right. Um, We have just a few minutes left of our, our time together. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, how do we help Black kids who have had tense and negative dealings with the police during their early years and into their adolescence? How do we help them? That's a, also a great question. I think um, we have the the difficult sort of um, balance of really just, you know, we have to be honest with kids 
and we have to um, help them understand how they are perceived in society and often, unfortunately, perceived in some racially biased ways. So they need to know that so that they can be safe, right? So that they can, we teach them, you know, Black parents have to give kids the talk, just cooperate with police, right? You know, be respectful, get home safe. Um, we have to do that on one hand. At the same time, though, Harriet, we also have to give children a, a, a safe space in which they can talk about their fears, right? And which they can um, talk about how they would like society to look differently. We can't just end by saying, hey, cooperate, you know, be respectful and safe with the police without also acknowledging that they're afraid and that they, but also, um, so not only giving them space to talk about how they want the world to look differently, um, but then also reminding them how wonderful and smart and resilient they are, creating opportunities for them to thrive. That's the way in which you begin to improve police relationships. And so people ask me, well, how do you get police officers and young people to get to know one another? Well, police officers need to show up in non-traditional ways without right. the uniform, right? And if they want to mentor and volunteer, they need to do so outside of the school system, outside of these traditional law enforcement contexts, right? Um, and just get to know kids as kids without the uniform on, without the power of arrest, without the power of reprimand, and just get to know kids without the without the without the uniform and authority. But it also works the other way. The kids have to get to know them, the police, without, you know, their their uh, trappings, so to speak. They have to get to know each other. And I, I think uh, that's a great suggestion. Well, I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about your book. Our listening audience is certainly more informed after hearing all that you had to say today. And I encourage people to get the book. The next time on Pursuing Justice, as I had said, we will be hearing from Professor Laura Cohen um, from Rutgers and also Hugh Burton, who she represented, who falsely confessed to the murder of his mother in 1989 as a 16-year-old. So we will be continuing to talk about this topic. And thank you once again. Professor Henning, for your time and your expertise and your book. It was a pleasure to meet you today. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, I hope you'll tune in next time to Pursuing Justice. This is Harriet Handel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet Handel.